You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about this year's Fierce Healthcare Women of Influence honorees. But first up, let's talk about charity care policies. Nonprofit hospitals in the U.S. are required to provide community benefits as a condition of their tax exemption status. According to IRS documents, these community benefits can be millions or billions of dollars per year among larger hospital chains. But research suggests that those dollars represent only about 2 or 3 percent of the total expenses the hospitals report. Some say this isn't enough to warrant the tax breaks they enjoy. A Lown Institute study from earlier this year looked at the 2018 and 2019 IRS forms of hundreds of health systems. They found that the community benefit spending was $18.4 billion less than the value of their tax exemptions. That's $18.4 billion. The study suggested that the difference could have been spent by the government on benefits like housing or food security or for those in need. Another study published last year in the Journal of Health Affairs found that nonprofit hospitals spent far less on charity care for the uninsured than government hospitals and for-profit hospitals. The hospital industry, however, argues that most analyses of nonprofits giving don't take all the factors into account. According to the American Hospital Association, in 2019, nonprofits provided $9 in community benefits for every dollar they received in federal tax exemptions. The latest scrutiny into hospitals' charity spending comes from Dr. Christopher Goodman at Prisma Health. He and his co-authors reviewed hospitals' charity care policies from 2019 to 2021 and they looked for any major changes in generosity since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. They published their findings in September in JAMA Network Open. Christopher Goodman is here on Podnosis, talking with staff writer Dave Moyo. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today to speak about nonprofit hospitals and their charity care obligations. Thanks a lot for having me. Sure. So uh, before we dig into your most recent findings, I was wondering if you could talk about why you and your colleagues decided to dig deeper into nonprofits' charity policies. Is there something here that wasn't being described already by the existing literature? Well, I got interested along with one of my co-authors because we both work in a safety net clinic. I kept encountering patients who are accessing our hospital system and our clinic system underneath charity care, this charity care program. And and, and I was aware of it, but I, I didn't know much about it. It seemed like there, it left something to be desired. So I, I initially took a look at some charity care policies in our area, uh, in our region in the Southeast and, and, and realized, well, you know, we, we didn't quite match up to these other hospitals. And then my curiosity kept going from there to, uh, to then, you know, have a first publication a few years ago on the topic and now the subsequent one in, in uh, JAMA Network Open. And uh, let's talk a bit about your current uh, publication. Um, if you'll allow me to summarize on your behalf here, uh, you and your colleagues reviewed the published charity care policies 
of 151 large nonprofit hospitals for any changes between 2019 and 2021. You all characterize these changes as either being more generous, more restrictive, or indeterminate if it was, wasn't clear-cut one way or the other. And what your team found was that the hospitals generally shifted to the general, generous side of the scale. Uh, specifically, about 56% of the policy changes that you saw were distinctly more generous. Only 19% were more restrictive. And the remaining 25% were indeterminate. Now, I'd, I'd love to get back to the indeterminate part in our conversation in a little bit. But uh, just to start here, what exactly were the types of changes that you saw most often that you classified as being generous or restrictive? Right. Uh, we did find that, that the changes that were happening in these charity care plans were mostly positive changes. And the, the kinds of changes were usually to certain eligibility criteria, uh, raising the income cutoffs that would qualify someone for free or discounted charity care or expanding the residency eligibility. Um, and similarly, for restrictions, really along the same lines, focused on the key eligibility criteria for either positive or negative changes. But of course, a lot of other stories can, can flow from there and a lot of other nuances. Um, and yes, on the whole, uh, when hospitals, well, most hospitals were updating their policies, 80% roughly. And then among those, they were mostly making significant changes and about a four to one ratio in terms of making positive versus negative changes. Now, I saw you on Twitter talking about some of the more unusual restrictions that your team found. Uh, so one of the ones I saw you quote, for instance, was a change to disallow coverage of care from self-harm or to disallow coverage of care while in the custody of law enforcement. And uh, you hinted that there were some other unusual ones that were already in place at some of the hospitals. Uh, would you like to elaborate a bit? Those two were, were were probably the most you know extreme versions, and and it really made you wonder uh, who is looking over someone's care to determine the, the limitations on what it would be considered related to self harm, or um, I think one of them phrased it uh, as as care related to criminal activity. <laughs> um, <laughs> those are quite expansive and and certainly a, a clinician is not r- routinely making this this distinction and then who is? <laughs> and it's uh well it, an unresolved question, but clearly someone, you know, is at some of these hospitals. Some kinds of restrictions were more in the what might be expected, like restricting access to birth control, as we've seen a lot of expansion of of hospitals with religious affiliations. Uh, you know that's uh, not unexpected as these uh, hospitals take over. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know certainly, you know a lot a lot of restrictions that would really challenge, you know what is intended by this requirement of providing charity care. Um, it's interesting that you talk about maybe certain categories of hospitals, such as the those with religious affiliations, adjusting their uh, policies in certain directions or already having them on the books. So I know your study also looked at some other characteristics, such as ownership type, local Medicaid expansions, hospital consolidations, and whether those impacted anything. 
Uh, could you tell me if, us about any trends you saw there? Right. Since we we were doing this analysis uh, of changes, um, you know, looking at the set of hospitals we have in 2019 and looking at 2021, um, we we thought we we try to say something about what other kind of systems factors were coming to bear on the types of policy changes. Um, and a, a substantial number of hospitals were uh, seemed to make changes that were connected to mergers and acquisitions. I think we had, um, had nine of those in the sample. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, that would represent care to a much larger number of hospitals for these mega mergers. And then we also tried to look at, at Medicaid expansion and the impact that might have. But uh, on the whole, you, you'd think that those two changes, Medicaid expansion and, and a, a major merger acquisition, would offer an economy of scale where a hospital might be able to have a more generous charity care policy. But we, uh, our um, results didn't support that you know, that hypothesis. Um, there, there wasn't a significant difference in the types of changes made. Interesting. And as you said, I, I would have expected the same thing too. I feel like we've seen a lot of discussion on the, let's say, mergers and acquisitions, for example, and that whole debate about provider consolidation. I feel like that's one of the number one things that you always see called out in all these announcements of this hospital is getting together, this hospital, we're going to be able to provide way better, high quality care to more people, less expenses. It's interesting to me with that debate going on now that you didn't see anything uh, very concrete. Exactly. And, and in, uh, this was not the, the, the primary purpose of the study, but we, we tried to make sense of, of the, the data that we had. Um, and, and underneath this merger and acquisition category, the, the largest uh, um, merger represented in our group was, was Common Spirit. The, we didn't name names in our article and just <laughs> not really the place for that. So the largest merger was uh, was Common Spirit, and it represents uh, the merger of Dignity Health and Catholic Health Initiatives. Uh, we had four hospitals in our sample from 2019, that and two for each of the, um, the merging hospital systems to form Common Spirit. Form Common Spirit, and the charity care plans for these two systems coming together worsened under. The under common spirit and and th- those individual policy changes that we you know carefully went through and and organized uh, accounted for about twenty five percent of the negative changes in our total number of negative <laughs> policy uh, changes of the whole sample. Um, so pretty pretty significant for that one that one merger. I'm going to hone in on you using that language at least on paper here, and I think now we can turn to. What I think is the other major takeaway of your study, and that's that quarter of so of the total changes that were indeterminate, and the language in the study you and your co-authors used very much called attention to, hey, these are changes we can't tell if they're better or worse because it's just so vague, or how do you even quantify if this is better or worse, or if you were a patient, how would you know that you qualify for this under what is being... Uh, written here in the written policy. Uh, could you speak a little bit about 
that um, ambiguity and where you think the industry needs to go to maybe amend that? Well, usually when, when we were, something got labeled indeterminate, it's because there, there was something new in the new policy that just wasn't addressed at all in the old one. You know, so um, I'm not sure I can put a number to the percentage of, of this at the moment, um, but I, a significant number of those indeterminates were because there was actually a, I guess, a, a positive development in a way of some specificity, but it was it was hard to compare um, because it just wasn't wasn't addressed in the old one. So sometimes it was labeled indeterminate, but it actually uh, was uh, there was specificity there. You just couldn't adjudicate whether it was a, a positive mm-hmm. change or not. Um, but, it, you know, of course, in a, in other cases, it was, it was the opposite, you know, or, or maybe introduction of language that still leaves you wondering what, <laughs> what we're talking about here. And uh, the, 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 the one that was the biggest red flag or the category that was the biggest red flag for us in terms of what hospitals are doing with charity care policy was language around assets. And um, our hospital was the only one in our sample that added new language about a third-party tool. But it it so happens that use of a third-party tool for assessment of eligibility is, is pretty common. It just didn't change, you know, at other institutions. So it's, it's extra layers of sort of hidden bureaucracy to this that has a big impact for patients in need of healthcare access, the third parties, uh, they might be good people, but, you know, <laughs> but um, they, they have a different charge than the, than the nonprofit hospital does <laughs> and, and less oversight and accountability. Um, as, as, as weak as it may be, it's, it's even weaker once we're using third parties for you know, something like eligibility determination. I'll, I'll give you a, an example of how this is meaningful, we we found that residency status was was a category that was that was changed in a in a lot of hospitals. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Better meaning a more expansive idea of who should be eligible for care, and and um, you know worse being tailoring down the um, eligible patient population to you know whether it's just a state or of residents or even sometimes a zip codes around the hospital. Well, again, longtime patient of our clinic, um, new breast cancer diagnosis, and she was uh, in her, she was in her sixties, new breast cancer diagnosis. And we've, we've been taking care of her. She, in the middle of this evaluation happened to move and didn't know anything about our service area requirement at the time, which was County county-based mm. and moved a few miles down the road, crossed a, crossed a county line and newly excluded from charity care in the middle of a pretty important moment in her life, a new breast cancer diagnosis and, and needing treatment. Um, so these details like ma- you know, matter in big ways for patients. Chris, um, I'll ask you maybe to interpret read between the lines here. The big scale picture of the net positive in generosity from 2019 to 2021. Uh, are there any factors that you think could have led to that uh, large-scale trend? To me, the uh, maybe the easy, easier, obvious uh, potential explanations are we're in a pandemic and people need care during a pandemic. 
um, the demand on the health system increased, and two, uh, the influx of federal relief funding maybe allowed some hospitals to become more generous. Do either of those, or are there other potential explanations that uh, you would be comfortable floating as a particular reason why things got more generous? It, it does seem like that there were that the positive developments probably relate to the the availability of emergency pandemic related funding. Um, I, I know one of our co-authors uh, felt like that was a strong possibility. I think that I think we were also seeing trends toward a, a peer standards among among peers. You know, um, in our article a couple of years ago in, in the American Journal of Public Health, our first sort of descriptive study of of what these charity care policies look like. In that study, we we felt like there was an emerging standard, and we and we used that to define what might be considered a, a restrictive, um, you know, versus a more generous policy. And I think, to some degree, the positive developments we were seeing were some of those hospitals that were a little below their peers coming up <laughs> to their peers, um, and that's in the absence of any federal national requirement to do so. Now there there are there have been developments in state policy that you know that can be quite it could be a little bit more complex to get into and, and we uh, did not address that in, in either of these two studies so it's possible that some of the developments at the state level may be impacting the overall positive developments um, but uh, it's it's I think our analysis suggests that it's not mergers <laughs> and and it doesn't appear to be Medicaid expansion uh, that that contributed to this. Your study was only through 2021, and obviously this is uh, up and coming, what's happening now in speculation, but do you suspect that maybe less charity care or policies could even um, be amended in the other direction now that we're seeing a little bit more of a uh, financial squeeze on the healthcare system as a whole? I hope not. Um, to a certain degree, there's. Uh, I think our hospitals do care about, I think they do care about their communities. I, I, you know, and and I do think that there's something to the appearances that some of the, um, some of the high level, key eligibility criteria. So, so it, it a hospital's probably not going to cut their income cutoff way back suddenly. Um, that might stir things politically a little bit too much. <laughs> but I, I do worry that with some of the flexibility they have with how eligibility criteria are left vague in some cases, really about, you know, about assets or coverage of cost sharing with patients that are, in, un, um, that are insured, um, that there's still flexibility to do some things behind the scenes and even with third party tools that, that we won't know about. You know? Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I do worry. And that's, that's why we called for at least a simple it seems simple, you know, call for, for transparency uh, requirements because that's, that's the letter of the regulation. Um, but it's, it's another matter of, of enforcement. Well, 
Chris, I just want to say thank you for your work investigating this um, important topic. And of course, thank you for joining us on Podnosis today. Break it all down. Thanks a lot for having me. That was Dave Moyo with Christopher Goodman. COVID-19's impacts are still rocking the industry. Healthcare workers and leaders face some of the largest challenges that have ever been put before them. And this is especially true for women. By now, it's no secret that female physicians and researchers make less than men and are typically tasked with more work at home. And women in healthcare are also often further down the professional ladder than their male counterparts. A December 2021 study published in Health Affairs simulated 40-year careers as physicians and estimated that wages for female doctors were $2 million less than male physicians. The income gaps were greater for surgical specialists. It's going to take all of the industry's greatest minds to tackle the challenges that are ahead. So in that spirit, the Fierce Healthcare team is recognizing 10 women making a big impact on healthcare. Senior editors Paige Minnemeyer and Heather Landy sat down to discuss this year's honorees. Hi there, Paige. I'm really excited to chat with you today about Fierce Healthcare's 2022 Women of Influence Awards. Yeah. It is our the fourth year we've done our Women of Influence, and we established this list to recognize women who are making a difference in healthcare. So, you know, as you are putting together this list this year, what are some of the key factors in determining who makes the list? What makes a nominee stand out to you? Um, I, th- I think for one thing, we try to capture the the breadth of the industry to some degree. Um, that can be a bit of a challenge as we only award 10, 10 people each year. But, you know, one of my goals in selecting this year's list was to represent, you know, a diverse array of the work that's going on every day to transform healthcare. Plus, we want to spotlight women who represent a variety of backgrounds, locales, and, and lived experiences. So more than half of this year's honorees are women of color. We know from our coverage and, and talking to people in the industry that really making a dent in some of the biggest issues facing healthcare requires a diverse set of voices. Um, a recent study from Penn Medicine noted that patients prefer to be treated by a doctor who is the same uh, of the same racial or ethnic group, and that and can bring that um, perspective to the care they provide. For example, one of our honorees this year. Dr. Margaret Mary Wilson, who is the chief medical officer at United Health Group, said that bringing her personal experience as a black lesbian immigrant, both to UHG and to her medical practice, is something that she strives to do every day. Well, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, going through these list of, of honorees, it's it's really interesting how they represent so many different um, areas of healthcare, and they all bring their own kind of very unique experience to their positions. This year, we asked the honorees what they believe is crucial to tackle health equity, which is obviously a huge issue that is gaining a lot of attention right now. What advice in particular stood out to you? Pretty consistently, our, our honorees spotlighted the need to talk less and, and listen more mm-hmm. so that underserved and underrepresented communities can make their voices heard more effectively. Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright, president and CEO of the Medical Group Management Association, told us that in order for equity to occur, we need a true revolution in our approach. And I think that rings very true as healthcare industry leaders have a lot of power to get at these equity issues, but won't be able to achieve anything if they keep thinking in the traditional siloed approach that they kind of always have. Um, Carrot Fertility's Asima Ahmad also encouraged healthcare leaders to really roll up their sleeves and on this and get their hands dirty. At some point, strategy and rhetoric lose their impact, she said. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great quote right there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, re- it's really interesting to hear their takes on the issue. Was there a common thread or trend with all of these finalists? Um, not so much a common thread among these specific honorees, but a, a trend I have been seeing as we continue to do this list is that we're seeing more women who are leaders at large influential companies. Um, we've been recognizing women of influence at Pierce Healthcare since 2019, as you mentioned. And each year we've noted that women tend to be lower on the career ladder than men in this industry. Mm-hmm. But looking at this list, you can see a lot more big name companies who are starting to change that narrative. And hopefully that will continue. Um, Dr. Wilson, who I mentioned earlier, is the highest ranking clinical leader at the largest healthcare company in the US. Our our honorees also include Melinda Richter from Johnson & Johnson, Roberta Schwartz of Houston Methodist, and Ramita Tandon from Walgreens. So hopefully we can continue to see more of these large influential firms really putting women at the forefront. Right. Great point. Yeah. I, every year it's interesting to see. Um, I think there's always a really great mix of leaders from these really big established companies and even mm-hmm. some of these smaller startups. So it's, it's really great to see um, women leaders really coming to the forefront. Totally. So, so as this list was narrowed down to the top, um, to the 10 finalists, what was the experience like of connecting with all these leaders? Do you feel like you learned something from them? Yeah, um, it was definitely inspiring to see the work that these women are doing every day to really drive the healthcare industry forward. Um, Dr. Teresa Owens Tyson, whose work I found pretty moving personally, as she operates St. Mary's Health Wagon, a nurse-managed health clinic with four mobile units and four brick-and-mortar units in Virginia. Um, She and her team work to reach some of the poorest people living in Appalachia with critical healthcare services, and as someone who grew up in the Appalachian region myself as a native of Western Pennsylvania. I've seen, you know, firsthand the impacts that poverty can have on people who live in those rural communities. So I was personally um, pretty moved to see someone who's really trying to tackle an issue that hits close home, close to home for me. Um, But I would also highlight uh, Dr. Fola May, whose extensive resume (laughs) speaks for itself and includes credits at UCLA and stand up to cancer. Um, In October 2021, she became the co-leader of Stand Up to Cancer's Colorectal Cancer Health Equity Dream Team, which aims to address disparities in colorectal cancer screening and treatment. So this just felt like such a tangible target for a health equity initiative that I think other healthcare leaders could take a lesson from, you know, set a clear goal and then work toward that. Right. Yeah. One thing that I really love about the uh, women of influence each year is that, you know, we highlight women who are, you know, working at a really large scale and, you know, making efforts, working at large companies, making, um, making efforts that impact, you know, people across the country. And then we also highlight women who are doing work that is very local Mm -hmm. and and really kind of um, addressing issues in local communities. And I think that's also um, really great to see. But looking ahead, as, as we're going to continue to do this uh, Women of Influence every year, what would you say to potential nominees in the future to encourage them to apply? Yeah, um, honestly, just just go for it. Um, we've committed to continuing to recognize women who are making a difference in healthcare. So I don't think you're going to see this, this list go away anytime soon. Um, we also continue to grow the number of nominations we've received for this honor. So I hope that's a signal that that women are really leading the charge in transforming this industry. So if you submitted a nomination this year for yourself or a colleague and you you weren't selected, you know, please don't be discouraged and, and definitely reach out to us again next year. Yeah, it is great to see that the the pool of applicants is 
gets larger every year and yeah. um, it does make it does make it harder right to mm-hmm. <laughs> to to pick the 10 finalists because you know every year we get so many great nominees for sure yeah we had over 180 this year so narrowing it down to 10 was very difficult so wow. yeah, yeah, anyone who submitted one and <laughs> was not selected, please do not feel that that's a slight. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, there's always next year. Uh, well, <laughs> thanks, Paige. It was really great um, kind of digging into the women of, women of influence this year. For sure. It's, it's great to see this list come together. That was Paige Minnemeyer and Heather Landy. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more on these topics in our show notes at FierceHealthcare.com. Look for podcasts. Next week, one of the topics we'll be exploring is what is driving retail's push into healthcare. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.